Well, hello, everybody. It's Martin Kiernan here again. Uh, and this week's podcast, we're going to be looking at what is actually a global issue, but in a very focused manner. So I'm delighted that Dr. Alicia Dumergian, uh, who's a paediatric infectious disease consultant and epidemiologist at the Evelina Children's Hospital here in London, has agreed to join me. She also leads the antimicrobial resistance and prescribing team at the newly formed UK Health Security Agency, which is formerly Public Health England. Now, Alicia's had a, a lot of experience in uh, infectious disease investigation, actually. She did a master's at Harvard Medical School and served as an epidemic intelligence service officer with the CDC in prevention, which is, I think, probably likely to be very useful uh, in this current situation. She's been leading uh, on looking at the issue of Staphylococcus capitis in the neonatal units. And to be honest, I hadn't heard so much about this until we started to discuss this earlier on this year. So, Alicia, could you start with outlining uh, the problem, please, and what the actual issue is? Absolutely, Martin. Thank you very much. Um, so the reason why this came to our attention is that in the summer of 2020, I believe, a few clinicians from the London area from several units were noticing that there were, um, they thought, more staph capitis invasive infections in their neonatal units. And they also thought that, so first that it was happening, happening more frequently, but also clinically that the infections seemed to be more serious than in the past. So um, obviously staph capitis is one of the coagulase negative staphylococci. So people tend to think that there are often contaminants in the blood and, and that is absolutely true. But the question there that was raised was, is this a different cons, if that's right, that we call them this way, um, than others. So this was brought to our attention um, around that time, discussions started, um, people started meet, meeting together. So initially five clinical units in London. Then this was brought to the attention of Public Health England. As you mentioned, we are now UK Health Security Agency. And um, some whole genome sequencing was done from isolates that were available at the reference lab. And what was interesting is, was that uh, out of 80 isolates that were that were uh, available then, so this is pediatric and adult isolates, but most of them pediatric. Um, almost all of them belong to the same clone, NRCSA. Ah. So this is where we were starting around February 2021. Yes, of course, there wasn't much else going on around that time, was there? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. People were not busy at all dealing with a pandemic, both on the clinical and the public health side. So it was interesting that this all came together. Okay. I mean, so do you think this was genuinely new for London and the UK around that time? Or actually had the, looking back, do you think it's been a problem a lot longer? Because certainly there are papers from France and other countries from a few years ago. So do you think we're just detecting it better? Well, that, that was actually one of the important questions there, because we wanted to make sure that with the new technology that has been made available more widely, so we're thinking Malditov and, and other technologies, that this was not basically an artifact of us knowing more and noticing when a cons was actually a staph capitis and not a cons in general. Mm. So that was really important to us. Um, and we did a little bit more work on that question. And, and yes, I, I do want to go back to what you had mentioned about other countries having detected this. So, so we knew that at least 17 plus countries have found that same clone almost exclusively in neonatal units. So our French colleagues, uh, Frédéric Laurent and Marine, and Marine Butin have uh, given us some really good advice in terms of where to start. They had noticed that this specific clone NRCSA 
which they actually named, um, was was really um, present in almost all French NICUs. And that was really interesting to us because we also spoke a little bit about antibiotic use. And, and in France, vancomycin seems to be um, used very commonly as one of the first-line treatments for, for sepsis in that age group. So it was interesting to see that, knowing also the background that, that NRCSA has heteroresistance hetero to vancomycin and perhaps thinking that it might be that vancomycin use in a baby might be a predisposing factor to um, having NRCSA in, in your blood or as an invasive infection. All this still, still needs to be looked into. It's not yet the case. But I digressed. And sorry, your question was more <laughs> no, about... No, it's easy. It's easy to digress. <laughs> There's I mean, so much to say. Absolutely. Honestly. It's been fascinating. And I have to, to mention that um, there, there is a really large team working on this, both at UKHSA and also from the NHS, despite what you mentioned earlier, some quite challenging times. Um, and I, I'm really grateful for everyone's input into this. We've had fascinating talks ranging from um, clinicians telling us, actually, this is a real problem, we need to address it, all the way to other clinicians saying, well, we see a lot of staph capitis all the time in our blood cultures. They're just contaminants. We don't really care. Mm. So it's been really interesting to hear people's different points of views and, and trying to decide whether actually is, is it a problem. Yeah. So the few things we have done so far um, are first, so obviously we are very fortunate at UKHSA um, to have the second generation surveillance system, so the SGSS system, which is a lab reporting system that uh, will capture all positive microbiology results from England. Um, so we have that information already. And, and our preliminary analysis, as soon as we heard this, was looking at cons and staph capitis from, from the first five or six years or so. And interestingly, just looking at these, there seemed to be an increase after 2015, 16. Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously some major caveats. Um, the first one is that SGSS will tell you about positive blood culture results. It will not tell you whether it is a clinical infection. No. It, will, it will not tell you whether it is actually a blood culture contamination. So that's really probably the, the biggest limitation in this case. There's no clinical information that comes in with SGSS data. It does tell you there's more of something around, though, doesn't it? Sorry, what do you mean, so something it, around? It does tell you that there is an increased amount of this particular organism. So yes. regardless of whether it's a contaminant or if it's a clinical infection, it does mean something's changed. And you know, I, I, I was wondering, you mentioned it before, actually, and I meant to pick up on it. You, some were adults, so we're not reporting this. You know, most of the papers are neonates. Yes. And do, do we just dismiss it in adults then? But actually, is it more endemic in our hospitals than it, than than just focused on the neonatal unit? Do we know that at all, really? And I mean, in an adult, you know, because your immune system is better, etc., you're probably not going to have so much a problem with it that a neonate might. It's really interesting because there are some mirroring effect at the extremes of age in terms of susceptibility to what are usually less virulent organisms. Um, but for staph capitis specifically, I've seen some case reports, for example, of, of an infected prosthetic hip or, you know, things where you have implants. So, so situations that are a bit different. 
um, but, but still not a very large presence of staff capitalists in adults. It doesn't mean it's not found. Okay. And actually there are so non-published non studies looking at the environment and it is actually found in both adult and uh, pediatric intensive care environments. But somehow I'm not hearing from my uh, clinician colleagues who look after adults that, that it is a similar problem there. Okay. I mean, it, it, yeah, if you're not looking, though, you tend not to see things. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. That is definitely one of the issues. And, and going back to the SGSS issue, and we were talking about that increasing trend, looking into those, we're also noticing. So we actually had to go through a survey and ask our colleagues regionally about their practices in terms of reporting uh, cons, uh, about speciating them, and, and trying to understand whether all these supposedly increased numbers in staff capitalists just represent better identification. Yeah. And it seems like this actually does compound the problem since Malditov has been much more uh, used over the last few years. Um, and so we, we tend to know more things. So yeah. the staff capitalists might have been there before. It's just as we see the, the category of unknown cons or cons not otherwise specified yeah. going down, yeah. you also see the staff capitalist numbers going up. Okay. So that can be put together. And um, again, the question is, does it matter? Yes. Well, that is, that is the question. But we are seeing significant infections in neonates, aren't we? So that is an area where it probably does matter. Absolutely. Uh, you've you found it around London. Is it wider spread in the UK? So is it like France, where there, there's spread in well, the evidence of presence in every neonatal unit? Would you say? So looking at again laboratory reporting data, it is found all over England. Mm. Um, our developed uh, administrations also have found similar problems, but the reporting is not the same. And again, some some countries actually. Um, have mandatory um, surveillance about uh, around staff capitalists. And we've discussed that with colleagues. And again, because of the timing with the pandemic, we decided that this was not a good time to, to add more tasks to clinicians yeah. who are really busy already. Yeah. So I think we all agreed on that one. But it turned out that many units around the country had identified that problem and were not necessarily raising it nationally, thinking it would have been a local problem. Okay. But interestingly, looking into, for example, environmental uh, sampling that we've done, there is actually a really nice crossover um, of some of the isolates. So so that will be really interesting to look into. Okay. I mean, the first question to me then is, if it's every, in every neonatal unit, how is it in every neonatal unit? Because it's clearly not a staff carrier because we haven't got one member of staff who's visited every neonatal unit in the country, apart from probably Boris Johnson, who may have done that sort of thing. But, you know, no healthcare worker's going to have done that. And the same thing in France. So how has it appeared in every unit? Is this? I'm wondering, is this a bit like the heater cooler units and the uh, the mycobacterium that actually got, got put in in the factory by accident? Is there something that's common with all neonatal units that may have actually seeded every unit in the country? It's a very good question, and there's still a lot of work being done on this. Um, the earliest um, clonal, um, so NRCSA isolates that we are find, finding in England uh, date from the 1990s, mm. but obviously a few de decade, decades before, there were some of those uh, all over the world. Um, so, so that's really interesting. A, a few theories there. Obviously, um, thinking about the transmission within a unit and from unit to another, 
we don't think it's necessarily some kind of prosthetic material or even ivy cannulae or no. or even things like we've had in the past in England with, with these various, for example, and contaminated uh, TPN or total parenteral nutrition uh, formulations or anything like that. So that, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. We have, we have looked into um, some possible issues there with contaminated equipment, and that did not seem to fit the picture with the staff capitalist expansion. Um, but we, we are still looking in those. The reason why um, equipment is not at the top of our list is that staff capitalist is not a very good biofilm producer, so doesn't fit there. Is it from perhaps all the mothers at the time they give birth because it might be present in the community? That is also uh, from at least our French colleagues' uh, reports, not really um, not, not confirmed. Because mm. everybody would have to have that same that same organism, wouldn't they? So in which yeah. case, we'd be seeing yeah. it everywhere all the time. So, I mean, it, I mean, you say it's not a good biofilm form. I've read a couple of papers that suggest that some versions form biofilm better than others. So do we know that this particular uh, clone does not form biofilm particularly well and on certain surfaces? Because some like plastics, some just seem to quite like plastics, and that might explain why... There's a paper from France that looked at uh, incubators, and they all yes. had it beforehand, and still 16% had it after decontamination. Yes, and I will sadly report that we are finding something similar in our UK experiments, which are still preliminary, so we're, we haven't finalized those. Uh, please stay tuned. But there are obviously issues about decontaminating um, areas, and as you know, in neonatal units, incubators are just so very difficult to completely decontaminate that they are they are thought to be possible risk factor in terms of colonization um, of the baby uh, following contamination of, of the environment, and obviously healthcare workers um, giving care to, to these very fragile babies who have tubes coming out. Uh, from different buddy sites, so so that's really important. Uh, going back to your question, sorry, I'm always uh, well. I mean, so many I know, well, I can do that as well. I mean, I agree with you about incubators; they're almost designed not to be cleaned effectively, aren't they? Yes, yes, and we have even explored thinking thinking um, with industry about ways this could be addressed. It's a bit tricky, uh, at least in France. Our colleagues are in. Um, close contact with some French manufacturers of incubators to at least think about ways uh, how they could be cleaned more easily than what is currently the, I mean, I don't know if people who are listening to this podcast um, have a few minutes to go on YouTube and look at a video in terms of picking an incubator completely apart and immersing some of the areas into liquid, but others cannot. And obviously the, yeah. the mechanical yeah cleaning bit of the clean, cleaning is the most important one and we've seen some differences in activity of disinfectants and anti and antiseptics that are usually used in uk units and we've seen strain differences um, in terms of staff capitis but again that's just the disinfectants and antiseptics on their own on the staff capitis yeah. the most important part of all this is the mechanical action yeah. and really yeah. rubbing and taking away as you know <laughs> it's, it's just so i just want to to highlight this for, for yeah, people to no, remember I, I agree. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, Peter Hoffman gave a lovely lecture at the IPS conference where he talked about where his colleagues challenged him to clean an incubator and they marked it with ultraviolet markers. Oh, no, sorry, they seed, they seeded it. Uh, and he he was unsuccessful in nearly half of the areas that they'd contaminated. And and if Peter Hoffman can't clean something effectively, you know, <laughs> then Completely it's very difficult free. from the average healthcare worker. So, but, that, but that's just symptomatic of a complex piece of equipment in a neonatal unit. And there's lots of complex pieces of equipment in a neonatal unit as well absolutely going back also to glove use when when we are around those areas and and so we have found staph capitis in multiple areas of of neonatal units and that would include places like um the mouse of the computer next to the patient yeah. uh, some of the linen that has been covering the incubators, some handles around the incubator, the oxygen dial, for example. So, so lots of different places. And even as we, we were mentioning cleaning, but areas that did not uh, show any staph capitis growth after they were swabbed uh, prior to cleaning, but then showed growth after, after the cleaning, cleaning yeah. which, which is obviously concerning. I mean, it's as you said, it's just so difficult to hmm. dec decontaminate those those pieces of equipment people don't always do what they should do anyway they use the same cloth on multiple surfaces so yeah there's there are a number of papers showing that things are sometimes more contaminated with different organisms after cleaning uh, i'm wondering if are there any units in the country that actually haven't seen it and have you looked at what they do and therefore why what they do might mean that they don't have it because presumably they've had the same exposure as everybody else, because otherwise the others wouldn't have picked it up. Absolutely. So, and and we have. This was actually one of our first ways of of um, engaging clinicians um, for, at the beginning of of the incident. And we haven't found. Well, first, what we have found is that no two units use the same guidance in terms of <laughs> infection prevention guidance within the NICU. Um, or decontamination, for example, of an incubator that's usually following manufacturer's advice, but that doesn't, well, for example, mention products or things like that. So, so that was one of the, the unmet needs that was found in this investigation. And we're hoping that a result of this will be a strong recommendation to have national um, guidance around mm -hmm. uh, infection prevention in neonatal units. At the moment, our national guidance does not cover children yeah. or um, pediatric wards or an, an even less neonatal wards. So we think that is really important to mention. So uh, have you got any examples of success then where people have placed in, you know, put in place some interventions and they've seen a reduction in the number of cases or has, has behaviour changed at all so that people are looking at what's actually happening within the unit? We have examples of partial success where sometimes those staph capitis bacteremias were detected as clusters, and then some further infection prevention work had been done in the unit. And actually, our French colleagues have published a, a really nice one uh, using uh, steam, for example. And we actually yeah, think that. it's probably the yeah, it's probably actually the the mechanical effect of of the steam as opposed to the the steamer yeah. as opposed to the temperature there. But but that was interesting. So and hearing things about one person going on leave and then having more of that um, of that isolate being found, then when the person comes back and does it the way they are, it's gone for a few months again. So what we've heard from units is often that these come in clusters, something happens 
again, unclear what it is that happens, but something happens. And then for a few months, there's nothing. And then they come back again. Okay. And, and so that's really interesting, but no, no final answer on that one. No, okay. <laughs> I'm just wondering where we go with it then, because we've identified it as an issue. The only risk factor for the patients, you know, the neonates themselves, I've seen is is the ventilation. Yes, ventilation and things like patient doctor and doctor sorry, so, so so really conditions that just mean that you have quite an unwell baby that uh, who who needs a lot of care mm. and a lot of manipulation and and contact with healthcare workers. So. I would say the jury is not out in terms of risk factors themselves. I would really like to know whether a vancomycin use within a unit or within an, an individual baby is actually predisposing babies to to having a severe infection with this organism. But um, there will still be some questions. I'm thinking about babies now being. Co do do you look at colonization of babies and suppression or anything like that if it's found? If it so, so we we haven't specifically in the UK also thinking whether this would be accepted uh, within our healthcare worker mm. community and also you know it, it's it's actually so the, so there's a couple of um, stories here. One is from our French colleagues finding that actually the staff capitis. Uh, colonization, when it is found in healthcare workers, is usually quite short-lived. So it's not something that stays for a very long time. Um, and some work from New, New Zealand, Louise Thorne has done some of um, that work also and has not found a great difference in, um, in outcomes. So we haven't looked at colonization of the babies per se at this moment. We're really just focusing on um, bacteremias and severe, um, severe infections. But this is something to be looked into. I, I'm just thinking, I mean, staph capitis is one of the many pathogens yeah. in neonatal units. So if we start decolonizing uh, healthcare workers or, or even patients and, and playing around with the microbiota, what, what are we exchanging it for? And uh, how yeah. about all the million <laughs> yeah. pathogens yeah, that, yeah. that are around? So, so where and, do we start? Well, the other things, what do you decolonize with? You know, you, exactly. you haven't got great evidence. I know 60% of U.S., um, neonatal units do use chlorhexidine to decolonize, but that's for prevention of central line-associated bloodstream infections, yes. even though it's not in a guideline and you can't find a study that says it's a good thing to do because you don't get approval from parents to actually to actually do this. Has anybody looked at staff carriage? And if actually uh, in a staff carriage, uh, a shedder may affect this, you know, people with exfoliative skin conditions or anything like that, as, as with other staphylococci? Yes, so there's been a little bit of work. Again, Marine Butin um, has looked at that and, and her conclusions was that it was probably not a very strong um, piece of, of the, the story there. For us in the UK, we haven't looked at individual healthcare workers, but what we've done is putting settled plates in areas where people, where healthcare worker uh, change, for example, so areas that are not uh, mixed with with patients and and their families, and and we have found some some staph capitis there. So it it is just likely that the staph capitis is in multiple locations, hmm. on the patient, around the patient, in the environment, and even in communal areas, for example, uh, where parents have access, as well as the healthcare worker areas. So it, it's in multiple places. Okay. <laughs> As you mentioned earlier, the more you look, the, the more you find. I'm just thinking, where do we go then? We know that most right. places have it. It'll be probably endemic in the environment of many areas. 
you know, is there any opportunity to really have a look at a complete decolonization of the environment with something like hydrogen peroxide vapor? But you have to empty it out. But you know that yeah. does penetrate most areas if you've cleaned thoroughly first, or you know maybe using UV or something like that. But you have to you'd have to empty an area out. You know, are there any opportunities yeah. to do that sort of thing and try and draw a line and then see where it comes back into? And I would have thought that our busy clinical environment would actually not allow for something like this to be done. Mm. And and taking a step back, do we really have to chase every single pathogen that is around yeah. in the NICU? So yeah. so maybe not. And obviously, infection prevention has to be um, done with good practice. It is super important. At the same time, I also do not think that having a clonal expansion of one specific pathogen is a good thing either. So no. there has been comments about, well, these babies are going to be uh, colonized with cons anyways because everyone has cons on their skin sure. don't they yeah. but my my response to this would say yes but i would rather they get you know there are natural quote unquote um cons from from their mother and the community rather than one that is found in hospitals perhaps yeah. more resistant to both uh, antimicrobials and um antiseptics um, and might be more dangerous for the baby themselves so um that's that's my two cents there yeah, I, mean, I don't. I mean, I don't really know where you go then with this one because we either started spotting it around 2015 because our diagnostics got better, yes, or something is seeding every neonatal unit with it, and it's some some piece of equipment or some even food stuff or something like that. Because I know they've looked at um, this organism in the dairy industry and they found it associated with milk and surfaces in food prep areas. So, yeah. Uh, uh, any case control work done on how babies are fed now they're going to be parentally fed anyway aren't they i'm thinking off the top of my head now no not necessarily they can also get their mother's milk um and that has been looked into and also not thought to be again by our french colleagues they have looked at um many different transmission mechanisms and that hasn't been found to be um part, part of the part of the answer there Okay, I'm, I have to say I'm really enjoying us learning from our French colleagues because we seem to be <laughs> not so keen to... We're sharing problems, many other yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, because these problems are global, aren't they? I mean, I'm seeing papers from New Zealand and, and all around the world. And is it is it the same strain that is present all around the world or are there differences? So the NRCSA clone um, specifically, again, is trying to understand what is the population structure of um, this specific pathogen and, and its genome and trying to see how many SNP differences actually constitute a difference in strains. Hmm. And every pathogen has a, has a different number. So for us, again, from just the best models, uh, we think that this NRCSA has uh, a two SNP difference per, per year, per genome per year, that would tell us that actually, so this is their natural mutation um, clock, if you'd like. And, and if we're finding differences in, in nine or 10 SNPs, actually, that might not exactly be the same clone, okay. but it's really difficult to define. We've also spoken to our US colleagues, and very interestingly, I've spoken to several major units and networks, and they're not identifying this as a problem, but also probably because they do not um, identify cons to the species level. For them, a cons is a cons, and okay. that's that's how it stays. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that, you know, because then you would look at, well, okay, what are we doing differently to our colleagues in America? You know, are there products that we use that are different? Are there practices that we use that are different? But 
Okay, I mean, I'm not really sure where, where we go on with this, apart from to reinforce best practice, isn't it? To make sure that if you are decontaminating your environment locally, that you're using something correctly and that you're doing it to the best of your ability. And you are practicing well when you're dealing with intravenous lines and ventilator tubing and, and that sort of thing. Because if it's the organism's endemic and we can't shift it, then we have to just make sure it doesn't cause damage. I agree. Infection prevention, again, is, is the best way to prevent antimicrobial resistance, isn't it? And, and that's also, mm. that was one of John Otter's priority, his, his first priority, I think, in yeah, one of your recent podcasts. And that, that's really important. So we talk about antimicrobial use, but obviously IPC is, is the big thing. But I do think that uh, this, in this investigation has highlighted uh, the need to, to think about what we're doing, because in most of these units, infection prevention control practices are recorded as ideal. Yeah. So maybe there are different things that we should be doing and learning from each other. And and the other thing I think that has come to light with this investigation also is the role of, of whole genome sequencing. Yeah. And obviously we wouldn't have known about this problem if it is a problem, hmm. uh, if we hadn't used whole genome sequencing to actually put some more links there. And things like, for example, baby in trust number one uh, being transferred to trust number two. And we find that the environmental samples in trust one are identical to the clinical samples in baby who is now in trust two. And being able to make that link would have been impossible without that new technology. So as we're learning more, we're asking more questions. And I agree, we don't have a lot of answers yet, but I think we're getting there. And I think is. Other than it is very interesting, I think it will help us uh, improve the care to, to our patients. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's useful, even if it's not so much of a clinical problem now. It is, it is identifying that there still are practice opportunities to improve, which, if we get right, will probably help us if a more virulent pathogen comes along and starts to become endemic or you know, if the organism uh, changes in its nature. So in some, in some ways, it's highlighting an issue before we've actually potentially got a really big problem. So I think that's potentially useful as well. Any final points you want to make? I mean, where, where, we can, where can we go with this now? Uh, so, so many things I'd like to say. But again, <laughs> no, just um, please keep uh, good infection prevention control practices. And again, think more about the role of uh, genomics in, in our day-to-day -day work as infectious mm. diseases experts and, and other clinicians, because there's more that we are learning and, and more we can do. So thank you very much for that. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me, Alicia. It's a fascinating topic, and I think we'll be you know, watching how this develops and we're looking at the papers that were coming out of it because, as you say, it's only been really been you know, published in the literature in neonatal units since 2015. Maybe people will spot it more in, in the adult population. Maybe people will find it more in things like prosthetic joints because you know, it's often just a, a coagnate staff. So it's a fascinating subject. Thank you very much for spending time. Yes, thank you. I, I do look forward to hearing from colleagues. And if anyone would like to get in touch with me, I'm happy to put links in the podcast. Thank you very much. If they'd like to share their experience as well. So okay. thank you very much, everyone. Okay, I'll put a few links to some of the uh, papers that we've talked about in the in the description and the link to the YouTube video as well. So Thank you, Martin. Yeah, we can always do better, can't we? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Martin, for your time. Oh, thanks everybody for listening and uh, we'll see you again on another episode of Infection Control Matters. <laughs>